So, dear brethren, a pleasure again to be here with you. I thank God for that wonderful, tremendous privilege that I never take for granted. I take it very seriously. This is the headquarters of the most important work on the face of the earth. And I think you all are convinced. And that's, that's why you are here, brethren. There is a scripture where we are commanded by God to give food to God's people in due time. If you want to go with me, brethren, we can find that scripture in chapter 24, the book of Matthew. Book of Matthew, chapter 24. Uh, book of Matthew, chapter 24 and verse 45. We have learned that from God's people, from Mr. Armstrong, from Dr. Meredith. This is the duty of the ministry of God's church. Chapter 24 again and verse 45. So it says, Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. So if we are commanded to give food to God's people in due season, it's important to ask the question, in what season are we? If we are going to fulfill this commandment of God. Brethren, we celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles that ended about one month and one week ago. And that the season was the season of celebrating of a harvest. We're all sitting down, not doing much. When you celebrate the harvest, you are celebrating the work you already did. You are not working at that time. We sat down, we received abundant spiritual food day by day. We didn't have much to do. Just sit down, there it is, served in silver tray, golden trays by God's servants. So, after that, we went and enjoyed physical food. Just sit down, enjoy it. That's the celebration of a harvest. Of a harvest where the fruits of the Holy Spirit should be more and more evident in every one of us. And I deeply appreciated Mr. Webb's sermonette, which I think is perfectly in tune, like the children's were now with the main message or with the sermon. I don't always call it the main message because the, the first one can be very important. <laughs> so, my dear brethren, in what season are we? So, after the feast, the big danger we as God's people run sometimes is to come down after the feast and sit down and do nothing. God designed his plan, brethren, in agricultural terms. He created the concept of agriculture and we still today have to celebrate every feast of God according to every harvest in the Holy Land. We still, even if we are living in an industrial society, very much disconnected from the agricultural world until we have some farmers in God's church, we still have to obey God's command and be on time for the first feast. There is a harvest there. Which harvest is it? And then we have to go to the second time... You know, the first feast covers Passover and unleavened bread. And then comes the feast 
of Pentecost, and we are commanded by God, let's look at it, we should not be empty-handed. So what is God asking from us is what we have to really think about. Of course, where your treasure is, is your heart is there, and we show God our gratitude when we present ourselves at the feast, and we are, we are generous with his work, the most important work on the face of the earth. But there is one thing that I think is important to think about. God is expecting fruitful people that is growing. At every feast, we have to present an offering of spiritual growth. And that's exactly what we have to show. And that's what we say often. Every feast is better than the previous one because God's people, according to his purpose, are growing in love, in joy, in peace, in long-suffering. If we share those fruits as we're being transformed from glory to glory, when we go to the feast, absolutely we can say every feast is better than the other one because there are more, a more abundance of the spirit of the fruits of the spirit. So, we celebrated the harvest, a wonderful harvest, with spiritual food, sharing with each other the fruits of the spiritual growth that God expects his people to achieve at every feast. We should not be empty-handed. It's not just a monetary offering, it has to reflect a changing heart that is shown in a physical way, my dear brethren. So what are we doing now? What season are we? Let's look at the amazing thing how God, even before time started, before the planets were created that start the count of time as the earth starts turning on its own axis and the moon around the earth and the earth around the sun, God had a plan to give eternal life to a family he was going to create. Let's look at that marvel of scripture and we see how God designed that plan in agricultural terms. He invented the agricultural concept before even he created the world. Because the only time when we start counting time is when the planets and the satellites start to exist. And we can count the days and the months and the years. We all know that. It's written in the book of Genesis. But if we look at the book of Titus, chapter 1 and verse 2, we find an amazing statement by the Apostle Paul that says in chapter, book of Titus, epistle of Paul, the, the Apostle to Titus, in chapter 1 and verse 2, he says, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. That's an amazing statement. He had a plan to have a family and to transfer to them his eternal life and made them and beget them with their spirit and transfer to them what only the seed of God can transfer, the characteristics of the one who is begetting eternal life. That's an amazing thing. And is represented in a seed that he transferred to those that he calls to be first, he says, first fruits. And then, of course, the great multitude that God will call at the end of time to fulfill an amazing prophecy, an amazing purpose that he had in his mind with the word who became his son, Jesus Christ, before 
time began. The same statement we find in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9. 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9. And then the Apostle Paul says, 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 9, who has saved us and called us with holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Now, how did he design that plan, that marvelous plan? We know that God has established three harvests, and he first started with agricultural terms, and he will teach us how he will eventually use matter to be the means by which he will reproduce himself and have first begotten children in this body of ours that will be transformed into spirit beings that will inherit the same glory that he has, that Christ promised in chapter 17 of the book of John. Let them have the same glory that we have of Father. It's so profound, brethren, but these expressed to us in agricultural terms. It is very important, then, if that's the mind of God, to understand certain details of how agriculture, I'm not an expert, but I have some basic understanding. I lived in the mountains in Colombia, in the Andes, far away in a farm where there is no roads and no electricity, where the steep, the slopes of the Andes are so steep, you only can plow the land with oxen. And uh, that was a tremendous experience for me when I came to the Church of God and started understanding the spiritual application of all the agricultural activity that God commanded men to achieve on this earth. And actually, men will go back to it. We live in an industrial society, and even in the, in the field, there is so much an industrial and noisy world that even the poetry of life has been taken away from men in the country. Mr. Armstrong used to say, when he was a young man, he used to walk around in Iowa and Oregon and hear the men singing behind their horses as they plowed the land. He said when the, the tractors came, they didn't sing anymore. We're going to hear a lot of singing in tomorrow's world. When God restores everything, I'm not saying we are going to have to very primitive life, but that aspect of the beauty and the poetry of life will certainly be restored to men like never before since the Garden of Eden. So, let's look for a moment of those three harvests that he designed according to what is written in his own word. In chapter, in the book of Exodus, we find in chapter 23 and verse 14. Exodus 23 and verse 14, my dear brethren. And let's try to look at the mind of God. And we will learn some things that are useful for our spiritual growth by meditating in what he created as a way to present to us his plan in three annual harvests. Chapter 23 and verse 14 of the book of Exodus. Three times shall you keep a feast to me in the year. Three times. We know that that includes seven feasts, but it's three harvests, as we are going to explain, and you probably know this. I have already spoken of this subject, but we are supposed to give food in due season and always enrich it as God 
helps us to meditate in his law and see marvelous things out of his law if we pray for that. Three times, again, Exodus 23, verse 14, you shall keep a feast to me in the year. We know, of course, Passover and unleavened bread will be the first harvest. We're going to see which one is that one. Then the feast of weeks, seven weeks later, after the first sheaf of the first fruits have been presented to God, we have to count seven more weeks for the second first fruits to be presented to God. And then comes, of course, the great fall season of harvest, which include trumpets, atonement, feast of tabernacles, and the last great day. You all know that very well, brethren, especially by practicing it year by year. So he says, three times you shall keep a feast to me in the year. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. You shall eat unleavened bread seven days, as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty. There you have it. That's the season of unleavened bread and Passover. And God is already commanded us not to appear before him empty. That means there is a harvest at that time. He's not going to ask what we don't have. He is requesting us to present something as an offering. What harvest is that one? What does it represent? Very important to understand, brethren. And it will help us in our spiritual growth as we continue to, to study this. And then in verse 16, it says, And the feast of harvest, the first fruits of your labors, which you have sown in the field, and the feast of ingathering, which is at the end of the year. There you go, the three harvests already mentioned here. When you have gathered in the fruit of your labors from the field. Three times in the year, all your males shall appear before the Lord God. According to what? To agriculture, my dear brethren. What can we learn from it? Let's look for a moment at Deuteronomy chapter 16. And you already know that too. Just to, conf to confirm and settle this concept deeply in our hearts. So we made to meditate in God's law and learn from his mind because he created these things. In chapter 16 of the book of Deuteronomy, God says, again, at the end of in ver chapter 16 and verse 16, three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, at the Feast of Weeks, and at the Feast of Tabernacles, and they shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every man shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given you. Once again, it has to do with agriculture, and we are commanded three times to come, and none of these times we can appear empty-handed. You know, brethren, just to confirm this, that God, frankly, designed his mysteries, the mysteries of the kingdom of God were explained in agricultural terms. I mentioned just a few for you. We can be, go on and on on this subject, but Jesus Christ himself and, the, and John the Baptist in chapter 3 of the book of Matthew, again, 
All the parables, many of the parables of the kingdom of God were explained in agricultural terms. We are going to see why I do insist on this, because we have things to learn, is the mind of our Creator. In chapter 3 of the book of Matthew, John the Baptist says in verse 11, Matthew chapter 3 and verse 11, I indeed baptize you with water into repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And look at this, verse 12. His winnowing fan is in his hand, and he will thoroughly purge his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn. There you go. And he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then, of course, brethren, you go to the parables, and I won't go into too much detail, but you remember the parable of the sower in chapter 13 and the parable of the tares in those sections of the gospel and the parable of the mustard seed. And in chapter 20 of Matthew, you read the parable of the father, the householder that has a vineyard and hires working for his vineyard. And he goes on and on. And Christ puts trees as example of giving good fruit or bad fruit, always referring to that concept. And then in chapter 15 of the book of John, chapter 15 and verse 1, I am the true vine, and my father is the wine dresser, the vine dresser. So all over, brethren, I do insist on the subject so we can learn and glean some lessons for our spiritual growth as we meditate in God's law, which good part of it is based on these agricultural laws, and or see on those harvests, or see, excuse me, brother, I'm mixing some French here. It's just uh, accidents that happen sometimes. <laughs> you have more than one language in your head. So, <laughs> all right. So, now, who, what are those three harvests? Let's look at something interesting here in chapter 23, because the subject comes over and over in the book of Leviticus, chapter 23 and verse 9. And I don't have to explain to you that this in the context of the days of unleavened bread. Chapter 23 and verse 9. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land which I give to you and reap its harvest. So remember, Joshua came in in the time of a harv harvest. It was the Passover time. Then you shall bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. And it doesn't say what harvest it is. And then, interestingly, in verse 15, God says, And you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering. And it says it was first fruits. So you, you, you shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath. Then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. How come you give a first fruits seven weeks before and here you offer a new grain? There has to be another harvest. What is it? So God doesn't say exactly right here, but he says it in his word. And we can find out. 
And then in verse 17 of chapter 23 of the book of Leviticus, you shall bring from your habitations two wave loaves of two-tenths of an ephah. They shall be in fine flour. They shall be baked with leaven. They are the first fruits to the Lord with leaven. Anyway, just a note here, brethren. Some people think that there's some confusion around that Christ is going to come back on Pentecost. He doesn't fit, brethren. He will come back when we have no leaven, when we're overcomers. Pentecost means the begetter that we have when we still have a body, that have a law of sin in our members that we have to overcome and bear the fruit of the Spirit. I was explaining the sermonette and be overcomers. So the fruits of the Spirit overcome the fruits of the flesh in our own body where there is still leaven. But the Spirit of God is there to give us that power. We will be harvested by Christ at His return. Only the overcomers will be transformed to spirit beings. And then we can be presented to Jesus Christ and the Father without leaven as overcomers. And we're going to see how that is explained by the Apostle Paul just in a moment. Now let's look at the third harvest here announced also and in the book of Leviticus chapter 23. And it says, Leviticus chapter 23, and it says uh, in verse 39, Also on the 15th day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep the feast of the Lord for seven days. On the first day, there shall be a Sabbath rest, and on the eighth day, a Sabbath rest. There you have the third harvest. Now, let's look for a moment the order of those harvests. Uh, they are explained a little bit here, a little bit there in the Word of God. And that will teach us some lessons that we need to learn, my dear brethren. In chapter 9 of the book of Exodus, we have an indication of what was the very first harvest to come in the Middle East. Chapter 9 of the book of Exodus happened in the context of the plagues of Egypt, and that month was the month of Abib, of the month or Nisan, and we know that, all of you know that, I don't need to go into much detail, but right before they left, a few days before, was the plague of the hail, and then we have here an indication of what was the first crop that was out of the ground at that time of the year, and we're going to see it represents Jesus Christ, who was the first one to come out of the ground the firstborn of the dead, the first one to be resurrected, the first one to start establishing the marvelous promise that God made before time began, that he will give eternal life in due order according to what we're going to see in the book of Corinthians. So in chapter 9 and verse 31, after the plague of the hail in Egypt, we have the first indication of what the first harvest to come and we will see that it represents Jesus Christ as we go a little bit further. Chapter 9, and verse 31. Now the flax and the barley, I'm reading from the book of Exodus, were struck by the hail. For the barley was in the head, and the flax was in bud. But the wheat and the spelt were not struck, for they are late crops. There you have a proof. Barley is the first one to come out of the ground. We're going to see represents Jesus Christ. Now, in the book of Exodus, chapter 34, amazingly enough, then you have the name of the second harvest. Write in your Bibles, my dear brethren. Chapter 
34 of the book of Exodus and verse 22. There you have it. As I said to you in the book of Leviticus, it say first fruits during the days of unleavened bread. Then it say first fruits again during Pentecost. It doesn't say which one, but it's right here. You just put it all together. You're going to see it matches perfectly. Chapter 34 and verse 22 of the book of Exodus. And you shall observe the feast of weeks of the first fruits of wheat harvest. There you have it. Seven weeks later is when the wheat is ready to be harvested. That's why it was not struck by the hail in Egypt. It was a late harvest. So that's how then can we understand how during the days of leavened bread there had to be first fruits of the first harvest, which was barley, and then seven weeks later, first fruits of the second harvest, which is the wheat. And here it is, seven weeks, the word clearly defines the wheat harvest. And we're going to see more proof of that, dear brethren, in the book of Ruth. You look at the book of Ruth, that is read by the Jews on the day of Pentecost for a good reason. In chapter 1 and verse 22 of the book of Ruth, chapter 1, verse 22. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab, now they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. There you have it. And then at the end of the second chapter of the same book, chapter 2 and verse 23 says, So she stayed close by the young women of Boaz to glean until the end of barley harvest and wheat harvest. And she dwelt with her mother-in-law. So you have the order, my dear brethren, and one more proof that is, makes it, nails it down with perfect clarity from the Word of God, dear brethren. The, God, the Word of God, always, we learn that, interprets itself. Chapter 21 of the second Samuel, you have a definite final clarification of the order of the grain harvest. Chapter 21 and verse 9. And he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the hill before the Lord. So they fell all seven together and were put to death in the days of harvest, in the first days in the beginning of barley harvest. There you have clearly determined the two first harvests, the grain harvests. And then the third harvest, which God commands us to present ourselves at the feast in the fall, is clearly explained in Jeremiah chapter 40 and verse 10. Jeremiah chapter 40 and verse 10. So we are speaking of three different harvests, which God in his amazing plan designed before time began, the order in which he will bring redemption to humankind, and we'll see in a moment. In chapter 40 and verse 10 of the book of Jeremiah, we have an explanation here. It says, Jeremiah 40 and verse 10, As for me, I will indeed dwell at Mizpah and serve the Chaldeans who come to us. But you gather wine and summer fruit and oil, put them in your vessels and dwell in your cities that you have taken. So clearly, brethren, and we know that, especially those who have lived in California, 
the time of the harvest of the wine of the grapes is the fall. And also the olives are gathered in the fall. So you have three different harvests of three different kinds in God's plan that he himself designed that. In verse 12 of the same chapter, it says, Jeremiah 40 and verse 12, Then all the Jews returned out of all places where they had been driven and came to the land of Judah to Gedaliah at Mizpah and gathered wine and summer fruit in abundance. There you have the summer fruit, brethren, and also the two first. Now, why do I insist on this? Interesting, brethren, to show you that these things I'm sure you know, but let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 22. And then we'll go to find some practical applications for us right now. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 22. It says, For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order. Remember, God promised eternal life before time was. And here, it says, each one in his own order. That's why it's important to understand the order of harvests. So we have a more clear idea of God's plan. And we're going to see that in a moment more clearly. Christ, the first fruits. We see already of what? Barley. It was the first one that came out of the grave, the firstborn of the dead. That grain had to die first, as he explained in a parable. And he was the first one to be ripped from the ground and presented to the Father the next day, as you very much, I hope you know this. I'm not going to go into those details now, how the first sheaf of barley had to be cut at the end of the Sabbath day during the week of unleavened bread. I won't go into much detail because that would be a subject for another study. And the next day he had to be offered that sheaf before God by the high priest. We know Christ resurrected exactly at the time they cut that sheaf. As he's explained in Deuteronomy 16, he says, you start counting seven weeks at the moment you cut the first sheaf. And he gave fulfillment to that. And the next day he was presented he presented himself to the Father. At the same time, the priest was presented the first fruits of the ground, the first harvest, like Paul says here, Jesus Christ, in the presence of his Father. That's what he said to Mary Magdalene, don't touch me, I have not yet gone to my Father. And the same day he came down. He did this with the barley and put it down. That's so interesting, brethren, because that's the order that God designed. And let's look at it. Let's continue here. I repeat. Chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, verse 22. For as in Adam all die, in, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, but each one in his own order. Christ the first fruits. Afterward, those who are Christ's at his coming. The overcomers will be ripped, of course, with spirit being, spirit bodies at the time of Christ returning. So, everything has been on schedule. Christ came and died on the 14th of then he resurrected during that, at the end of that Sabbath, during that week. Then he was presented before the Father on the first day of the week when the priest presented the wave sheaf. Everything on schedule. Pentecost came right on schedule, my dear brethren. And Christ will come right on schedule to reap the harvest without leaven, transformed to spirit beings with a glorious body like his. 
so we can be presented to the Father. So, and in verse 24, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father. And he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power. That's what the summer fruit. So we have the three harvests there now. So in what season are we now? What do I present all these pictures to you, my dear brethren? There are some practical reasons why. What season are we now? We're going to read. I'm going to read to you from chapter 11 of the book of Deuteronomy, my dear brethren, a margin note from the Companion Bible, which brings some interesting concepts and helps us in God's study of God's Word. Let's go to the book of Deuteronomy, and let's find out in what season we are now and what are we supposed to be doing right now, my dear brethren. Chapter 11 and verse 13 of the book of Deuteronomy. Chapter 11, verse 13, it says, And it shall be that if you diligently obey my commandments, which I command you today to love the Lord your God with, and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, then I will give you the rain for, for your land in its season. In its season. Let's see how beautiful this is, brethren. We're going to see. It's marvelous. I will give you the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the latter rain that you may gather in your grain, your new wine, and your oil. We already saw that the grain includes the barley and the wheat. And the wine and the oil are the third harvest. And it's necessary to have the early rain and the latter rain. When did the early rain come? That's the season we are in now. I'm going to read you a note here. Chapter 11, again, of the book of Deuteronomy. And let's look at verse 14. I'm going, you already read it, but I'm going to read here. In the Companion Bible, you can check this up, my brethren, and any dictionary that understands agriculture in the Holy Land and many other countries actually in the same latitude are pretty much the same. And even here, we're having rain now. There is a reason for it. It says here, first rain, early rain, falling middle of October to January. We are in that season now. We're going to see what should, should we be doing. We are not in the harvest celebration any longer. We are in the season of the early rain. What are we supposed to do? Let's look at it. And it says, falling middle of October to January. We are right there. And even here we are having some rain. That's so beautiful about God's word, brethren. We meditate how he conceived the world and his plan. It will help us. We will see in a moment. Preparing ground for seeds. What does happen after a celebration of harvest? Are we supposed to go back home and get busy and work? You know, brethren, sometimes we neglect this. That was so important to meditate in God's law. Sometimes, brethren, and I include myself, we go back home, we sit down, 
We don't do much for our spiritual lives. It's not the harvest celebration any longer. It's time for planting. That's what God is sending, that early rain. It's time to be busy. It's time to be diligent. If we neglect it, what are we going to present to God on the next harvest? When that early harvest in the springtime comes, what are we going to present to God, brethren, if we have been busy working in this tremendous and beautiful cycle he's teaching us? You see, there is an application for this. I repeat, this is a tremendous thing. Latter rain falling in March, excuse me, early rain falling middle of October to January. That's exactly where we are right now. Preparing ground for seeds. First occurrence of these rains. Latter rain falling in March and April, bringing out, bringing on the harvest. If this is not the latter rain in the springtime, the barley will not get ripe. It is necessary to get that latter rain to be ready. It's marvelous. Let's look at Leviticus 26 for a moment and see the same pattern, brethren. I want this to be clear in our heads. Leviticus 26 and verse 3. Same promise. Leviticus 26 and verse 3. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and do them, then I will give you rain in due season. And if God is giving us blessings, spiritual blessings, brethren, we better take advantage of them because we understand the spiritual aspect of this. We're still within those, that context of agriculture. And the land shall yield her increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. And your threshing shall reach unto vintage, and the vintage shall reach unto the sowing time, and you shall eat until you sow in time. There is a sowing time, which is when now, when the early rain comes to prepare the ground for the seed. What is the seed? Book of Luke. When Christ explained the parable of the sower, he said, the seed is the word of God. After we rejoice in the harvest of the Feast of Tabernacles, we're supposed to come back and plant that word of God as a seed deep in our hearts and minds day by day. We're going to see a little bit more of it in a moment. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land safely. There are more scriptures. I, I show you two more again to confirm these concepts that will help us, brethren, to put to work some practical aspects of our spiritual life. Let's look at the book of Joel. Book of Joel, the prophets, the minor prophets, Joel. And you will read in chapter 2 of Joel, verse 23. Joel chapter 2 and verse 23. Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in the Lord your God, for he has given you the former rain faithfully, and he will cause the rain to come down for you, the former rain and the latter rain in the first month. The threshing floor shall be full of wheat, and the vats shall overflow with new wine and oil. There you have the three harvests again. Interestingly enough, the Apostle James also makes mention of these concepts in the New Testament. Let's look at it for a moment. 
James, epistle of James, and let's look at it, dear brethren, chapter 5 and verse 7 of the book of James. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, waiting patiently for it until it receives the early and latter rain. You also be patient. Establish your heart, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So, I've demonstrated, brethren, already with those scriptures that we are in the season of the early rain that prepares the ground for seed. After the harvest celebration, there is a good amount of seed that is kept to be planted. And God expects after the feast to come home and we get busy and plow the land. We are made of the dust of the earth. There are some parallels that can be useful for us. How can we plant the seed of God in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls? We are made of the dust of the earth. It's interesting that the way the word to pray and to plow sound a little bit similar. We're going to see. I'm not going to be absolutely dogmatic with this, but it's just a type of meditation that is useful, my dear brethren. We're going to see. It's interesting that in Spanish, arar is to plow, and orar is to play, is to pray. And in English, you have the word arable land, which is very close. It's the same word in Spanish, arable, arable land. And God considers us dust of the earth, where his spirit dwells, but where we have to plant the seed, because the seed is the word of God. How can we do that? Let's look for a moment at a certain principles we can learn from the man according to God's heart, who God loved God with passion. By the way, when I live in the mountains, brethren, you get up before dawn. If you want to go and plow the land and have a productive day, you get up before dawn when it's still dark. And we have an example of our master, Jesus Christ. At what time did he get up to pray? And we'll see how it can mean it can also mean to plow our... In Mark chapter 1, and Dr. Murray made mention of this last week, where you see the themes are connected, we're just giving some ways to apply those principles that we have been taught. In chapter 1 of the book of Mark, in verse 35, chapter 1 of the book of Mark, 135. Now in the morning having risen a long while before daylight. I tell you, I had to get up early in the mountains before daylight to bring the oxen. And having ready, even when it was just dawn was coming, we started to plow, to break the ground, to put the seed. And let's look at this. Now, in the morning, having risen a long while before daylight, which I have experienced in the mountains, in the Andes, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. There we have the example of Jesus Christ getting up early in the morning to pray before he went to work. To work. That's an example for us. Very early in the morning. Now, when you are in the mountains, brethren, you better be diligent. And let's see what God says to us in that context. We apply the spiritual dimension, Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 4. Proverbs chapter 20 and verse 4. 
So you are going to see now that we have practical applications as we meditate in God's law and how we should be taking advantage of the season we are now and not lose that tremendous momentum of the Feast of Tabernacles, but get busy day by day and not neglect our spiritual life. No wonder that with the Feast of Unleavened Bread comes, the Feast of Passover, the devil attacks the church and many sometimes are not prepared because we have not been busy doing what God teaches us to do in the season of the early rain. Let's look at this. Chapter 20 and verse 4, the book of Proverbs. The sluggard will not plow. There you have it. Because of winter. Boy, it was cold this morning. When you know this is the plowing time from mid-October to January is a time of winter. And you have to get out when it's still dark if you want to take good advantage of your day. Otherwise, we are neglecting our spiritual life. So it says here, the slogan will not plow because of winter. Therefore, he will beg during the harvest and have nothing. Will not have spiritual growth to present to Jesus Christ when Passover times comes. And there is another lesson there. Christ was represented by the barley. I have demonstrated it to you with absolute clarity from his own word. What's the first thing we learn from barley? It's the first season. It's the first harvest. You know what? Humility. How come humility? Let's look at Revelation 6.6 6 for a moment, my dear brethren. Revelation 6.6. 6. And remember, leaven means pride. And we have to have something to present because we just read. We cannot present ourselves empty-handed at the Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover. You see how everything matches. What do we do? We should be plowing the land and planting the seed, not be lazy. That simple. Get up early. And we're going to see something about the evening before in a moment. What should be our duty? My dear brethren, in chapter 6, verse 6 of the book of Revelation, we have a lesson of humility. What did Christ say? Learn from me who are humble and meek in spirit. Learn from me. And here it says, And I heard a voice, Revelation 6, 6, in the midst of four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. And do not harm the oil and the wine. I bet you there is a prophetical meaning here with the order of these harvests we, we have already studied. But what do we find here? Barley is three times less expensive than wheat. A bread of barley wasn't as appreciated as a bread made of wheat. And Christ gives us a lesson of humility. He wants to be represented by the cheaper harvest. But he says to us, learn from me, who are of a meek heart. And humble. That's the first lesson we learn. We are planting his word in our beings. We'll have something to present to him. When that feast comes. We'll not be empty handed. If we are plowing this ground of ours day by day. And putting his word there. That's why there's some logic to think. And I will not be dogmatic with this. Each one has to do it the way he prefers. But before you plant a seed, you plow. You open the ground. 
if we pray before we study God's word, and I will show you how in a moment, if we are, in, we are connected with the presence of God, and after we read his word, I bet you, brethren, with your mind and your heart and your soul are connected with God first. That means you have plowed the dust of your own ground, which is this body. And then you, put, you start reading God's word where you have taken enough time to be connected with God. I guarantee to you, brethren, you will start seeing things there that you probably did not dream that were there. You feel that word penetrating deep. <laughs> Very deep. Because we have prepared the ground for the seed, which is his word. Let's read a few more proverbs about diligence. Are important, brethren, because Paul said to the Hebrews, that letter could have been written as late as 67 AD, I asked Dr. Murray to clarify that to me. He was my professor of Epistles of Paul, which I thank God for that. And he said it could have been written as late as 67. Three years before the destruction of Jerusalem. What is he telling them? Don't be lazy and sluggard. Keep the same diligence from the beginning all the way to the end. I want to go to too many scriptures, but it's right there. Let's not become lazy. And we're at the end of our, our times now, brethren. Entertained to death and being fed by this word and the mixture of good and evil. Day and night. No wonder Christ said the abundance of evil we make the love of many to wax cold. But we'll go that a little bit later on. But let's look. I go back into that. But let's look at the tremendous lessons the book of Proverbs says. In chapter 13 and verse 4. So we have. That's why it's so important to know what season we are. We cannot be lazy and just enjoy the good memories of the feast. We have to be busy getting ready for the next one. Chapter 13 and verse 4. The soul of a sluggard desires and has nothing. And the soul of the diligent shall be made rich. It takes diligence to get up when it's still dark, brethren. To plow this land of ours before we start a day. Then in verse chapter 12 and verse 11. He who tills his land will be satisfied with bread. When unleavened bread comes, we'll be full of the presence of Jesus Christ, of unleavened bread, with humility. And the devil will not have access to us. Well, many crises erupted the church at that time because we had not been busy now, at the time of the early rain that prepared the seed, the ground for seed. And we have sometimes nothing to present to God as far as spiritual growth. The transformation of learning meekness and humility from that barley, which represents Christ. But he who follows frivolity is devoid of understanding. Frivolity means vain things, which you are surrounded by vain things like never before. Let's look at a few others. 
in chapter 14 and verse 23 of the book of Proverbs, it's amazing how many Proverbs are there about diligence, which in Mr. Armstrong's language means drive. It's the same concept. Drive to succeed. We need drive. We need discipline. We need to get up early, brethren, like Jesus Christ, and get busy and get that plow in our hands and do something about what we should be doing right now. 20, chapter 14, verse 23, In all labor there is profit, but idle chatter leads only to poverty. Made me, think, made me think of Facebook. Idle chatter. You know, it is good. Brethren, don't get offended. <laughs> I get invitations to Facebook every day, and I said, Ah, humankind has lived 6,000 years without Facebook, and I don't need it to enter the kingdom of God, so I will keep contacting you the way I have always done. See you later. I don't have time for that. So, <laughs> brethren, idle chatter leads to poverty. And there's a lot of idle chatter. We're going to look about entertainment in a moment. If I have time here, brethren. It's just amazing. We live in a time of distraction and waste of time. I don't say that is bad. No, it's good that brethren can share things. But don't let anything dominate you. Like Paul said, good use of time. But when it becomes idle chatter, it leads only to poverty, spiritual poverty. And sometimes gossip and who knows what else. In all labor, there is profit. In all labor, there is profit. So let's look a few more here. Just amazing. This book is filled with those. Chapter 18 and verse 9, he who is slothful in his work is a brother to him who is a great destroyer. If we are not close to God and we are disciplined and have diligence and drive in our spiritual life, we will be harming other people as we are easy prey of the devil. It will spray around us. It will spread around us. So he who is slothful in his work and this is a calling for people to work in the work of God, in the vineyard of God, in the fields of God. He's a brother to him who is a great destroyer. Chapter 19 and verse, and these are not all. You can put a sign there if you want. Amazing how many of these things are applied to our spiritual life. 19 verse 15, slothfulness casts one into deep sleep. And, I, and an idle person will suffer hunger, will not be prospered. So, once again, it's all over the book. Chapter 21 and verse 25, the desire of the slothful kills him, for his hands refuse to labor. If we don't have the elemental discipline following Christ's example, now some people might work by night, and they have to organize their schedule. If we don't do it, brethren, we don't plow this land, we don't take the time that he himself set an example for us. And he did it in the evening too. We'll, we'll see that in a moment. He did it morning and evening. And let's read this last one, chapter 24 and verse 30. I went by the field of the slothful and by the vineyard of the man devoid of understanding. And remember, Christ uses the example of a field to explain the mysteries of the kingdom of God. He explained the example of a vineyard. And there it was, all overgrown with thorns, 
its surface was covered with nettles, its stone walls was broken down. When I saw it, I considered it well. It looked, I looked on it and received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, so your poverty shall come like all a prowler, and you want like an armed man. And this happens often because we stay too late watching TV, brethren, wasting our time. And I will see that in a moment. There is a reason why Christ says the love of many will wax cold. There is a reason for it. I don't pretend to cover the whole subject, but we'll understand that in a moment. So, how can we plow our land? First, follow the example of Jesus Christ. We have a normal schedule. Let's organize our lives and be disciplined, go to bed early enough, and we'll see what we have to do before going to bed in a moment. And let's get up early so we have time to connect with God and then put that seed inside us. A man, according to God's heart, gives us some instruction on how to get up early and seek God and plow our land, my brethren, our body made of the dust of the earth, and plow. That means to pray. I mean, in this analogy we're using here. Psalm 63. A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Psalm 63. Here we see how you open your heart and your mind and your soul and connect with the Most High where we have access and woe unto us if we don't use that privilege that caused the blood of Jesus Christ to open the way for us to the Holy of Holies. Chapter 63 of the book of Psalms. Oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. There you have it. Early will I seek you. If these are not clear examples for us, brethren, we don't have eyes to see. My soul thirsts for you. There it is. That's what we have to open as we pray for the presence of God and we be connected with him like an open field with the furrows already open, the mind and the soul. My flesh longs for you to be connected with God in a dry land and thirsty land where there is no water. So I have looked for you in the sanctuary where we have access. If I say it again, we have access to that sanctuary to see your power and your glory. Because your loving kindness is better than life. My lips shall praise you. Now, let's look at Psalm 119. And let's look at some examples. If you want to learn, brethren, what it means, the greatest commandment. Well, some people don't really know. What does it mean to love God with all your heart? With all your mind? with all your soul, and with all your might. You know, it's explaining this song. In that 63 already we saw, my soul thirsts for you. That desire to connect with God. David could not live without it. And he learned to depend on God day by day because his life was continually in danger. If we don't learn this now, for brethren, we might force God to be in the position of Anne Frank in Amsterdam, waiting for the moment where they will come to seek them and put them to death. He's coming, he's around the corner. The worst persecution on earth 
for spiritual Jews is just coming. I bet you, brethren, that will be day and night connected with God if we are put in a situation like that. If we want to be in the kingdom of God. And God is going to be forced because of lukewarmness to put his church through three and a half years. When you are like Anne Frank hiding somewhere and not knowing when they are going to come pick you up, I bet you will be day and night seeking God like David was for his life. So we should not force God to put us in a situation like that. But that's where we are heading, brethren. Not everybody, but the majority of God's church is heading for the worst persecution. Because Christ is going to marry a passionate wife, not a lukewarm wife. And the wife will be ready. Some will be ready in the place of safety. Because they were able to overcome the world in which we live now. And didn't let the world steal our time from being connected with God. And then many, maybe some of us, I don't exclude myself. He that stands, let him watch, lest he falls. will be put in a situation, will be at any moment, be picked up to be put to death by the beast and the false prophet. That time is around the corner, brethren. God is giving us a chance to be connected with him by putting to work what we can learn from these things. So how do we plow the soul and the heart and the mind? How do we prepare what we are? Because that's how God describes what we are. We have a mind, we have a soul, we have a, a heart. Here it is. Chapter 19, or the, 119. David knew it. Verse 2. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with the whole heart. If we learn to imitate Jesus Christ and get up early in the morning and seek him with the whole heart, then we'll be plowing our heart, opening it for his presence and then for his word to come deeply inside us and have those roots that will produce a sure harvest for the next feast. And we can read verse 7. I will praise you with uprightness of heart. And in verse 10, with my whole heart, I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart. There you have the two of them. First he seeks God. And then he keeps his word in his heart that I might not sin against you. Verse 15. I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. You know, meditation is the natural result of studying God's word. Studying is like eating the bread. Then the digestion is when that's foremost in our mind and hearts. Those connections that we can call meditations, that amazing and wonderful knowledge that God has for us if we learn to meditate day and night. That's why I asked for that psalm, the last one that we sang before the sermon. Number one, meditating God day and night. I will meditate on your precepts. Now look at verse 18. This, we can understand, opens 
refers to the mind. Open my mind. It says, open my eyes that I may see wondrous things from your law. That was a prayer of David. That's how we can understand the harvests. We can understand so many things that were written in physical terms, and they have an amazing spiritual significance that Christ said to the apostles, bless your ears that hear what you are hearing, and your eyes that see what you are seeing, because many kings and prophets wanted to see that they did not they didn't understand exactly what those harvests meant. We do. What are we doing about it? And he says, open my eyes, verse 18, that I may see wondrous things from your law. Don't you ever think, brethren, that we have seek God's law to the depths of it yet? Then here we have one about the soul, verse 20. That we read about in verse in Psalm 63. My soul breaks. That is it. Breaks like the ground. My soul breaks with longing for your judgments at all times. Verse 25. My soul clings to the dust. Revive me according to your word. Another one for the mind. Verse 26. I have declared my ways, and you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts. So shall I meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts from heaviness. Strengthen me according to your word. Verse 32. I will run in the way of your commandments, for you shall enlarge my heart. Verse 33, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes. Verse 34, give me understanding, and I will keep your law. Indeed, I shall, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Verse 36, incline my heart to your testimonies. Verse 50, verse 55. I remember your name in the night, O Lord. We're going to see that in a moment. In verse 58, it says, I entreated your favor with my whole heart. You know, in the Hebrew says, I beseeched your face. Your face instead of favor with my whole heart. There are so many other things to mention, brethren, but these are just a few of the ways we can worship God with the heart and the mind, the soul, and at the same time, it's like plowing, opening them to receive, first to connect with God and then to receive his word. That's how we can take advantage of the early rain season, my dear brethren. Those are just a few examples. Now, concerning the evening before, if I have time, I'd be as quick as I can. There was a ritual that was commanded by God to Aaron the evening, every evening. In chapter 27 and verse 20 of the book of Exodus. While you look for that one, I ask you please also to remember this scripture here. How Christ at the end of his journey, like the evening and morning is, we might have to repeat that sermon one of these days, the priesthood of Melchizedek, which is very useful too, as we apply these analogies to our spiritual life. 
Excuse me, brethren, I would like to read to you first the example of Christ, what he did in the evenings. In chapter 14 of the book of Matthew, before we get, you can keep your hand there, if you please, so we can turn quickly to Exodus 27, and we'll read something interesting here. In chapter 14 of the book of Matthew, chapter 14 of the book of Matthew, chapter 14 and verse 22. Let's read his example. Like we saw in, in, in Mark 1, 35, he got up early when it was still dark, Let's see what he did at the end of the day, which you know he did it continually, like even Daniel did it, evening and noon and morning, and David also, at morning, at noon, and evening. And we should follow those examples. So we are always ready and connected with God. Chapter 14, verse 22 of the book of Matthew. Immediately Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go before him. This is after he had multiplied the fish and the bread to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And when he had sent the multitudes away, he went up on a mountain by himself to pray. And when evening had come, he was alone there. My question is, brethren, what do we do in the evening? It's, of course, important to watch the news. There are things that are good. We are commanded to examine all things, retain what is good. I know saying television is bad in itself. I know saying internet is bad in itself. I know saying, but brethren, if we are going to hate evil, there are very few things there that are worth seeing. And one of the problems we're having in our days is that God says, God says, because Wickedness will abound. The love of many will wax cold. If we entertain ourselves watching over and over, especially in the evenings, how God's law is broken time after time in the movies, on the Internet, in YouTube, and the words that are said, we get used to that, brethren. We start losing the fear of God, which is defined in chapter 8 of the book of Proverbs. The fear of God is to hate evil. If we don't hate evil, which is the beginning of wisdom, we start losing discernment. If we lose discernment, we start thinking that those things might be okay, or we do not hate the amount of wickedness that is presented as a daily diet to the audiences. I'm not saying we cannot watch it. We need to. It's necessary. Well, brethren, let's keep in mind, the fear of God is to hate evil. And then, not only that, because we will lose discernment. And the foolish virgins, their lamps get dim because the eye of the body is a lamp. We get so used to see wickedness and the law of God transgressed. We get used to it. And we don't hate it. And we lose discernment and we also lose the love of God. Chapter 97 of the book of Psalms says it very clearly. So we need that discipline not to let anything rule over us, to dominate us, to have that discernment clear. 
and discern what is bad and what is good and not let it, that diet make us lose discernment, spiritual discernment. You lose fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. We lose spiritual discernment and we don't hate evil. And here in chapter 97 of the book of Psalms, it says, you, verse 10, 97 verse 10, you who love the Lord hate evil. There you have it defined there by the word of God. That means if we let all this mixture of good and evil come to us, we get used to it, we become like it. And especially if we go to bed with that thing in our hearts and minds, that's how we'll go all the way through the night in our spirit. And I will show you why. Why does God command Aaron? And in the place of safety, I bet you, brethren, God is going to bring us for three and a half years, if we are worthy to escape, in the wilderness. There will be not much entertainment. And those that are connected with God, they are happy. They don't need it. Moses was 40 years in the wilderness. Where was David? Well, he was called to be anointed in the wilderness, keeping some sheep connected with his God, like no one in Israel. When he saw that giant, he was just a Philistine uncircumcised that was blaspheming his God because he was connected. And he wrote Psalm 8, if I have time to explain that to you. The subscription of Psalm 8, Mut Laban, means the death of the champion. He was connected with his God when he slept under the stars. And so the greatness of his God, that giant, was nothing for him. We will learn those things in place of safety. Where was John the Baptist? No man born of a woman is greater than him. He grew up in the wilderness. Moses, 40 years in the wilderness. When did Paul, God take Paul after he was converted? Three years to the wilderness. So you learn to connect with God. Today you are so immersed in this world, we think it's boring. It's not boring. I've been a forest ranger in Canada for a whole summer, and I'm not an example for anybody. But I tell you, that helped me. If you are connected with God, you are not bored. I make it clear, and I make the last statement here, brethren. If we don't lit our lamp in the night and have it burning all night, that the wise woman will not be ready when Christ comes back. And there is a warning about that with the foolish virgins. That's what it means that Aaron had to put olive oil on those lamps to make them burn all night. The olive means the word of God. Christ said, the words I've spoken to you are spirit and are life. If we don't fill our minds with the word of God and meditate all night at that song we sang, how can we meditate? Remember, Song of Songs, chapter 5, verse 2, I was asleep, but my heart was watching. David said, even at night, my conscience and my heart instructs me. Because you are diligent in the evening, the word of God will stay in your heart. Even if you are asleep, brethren, in the morning, it will be much easier to make the connection and take advantage of the season of the early rain.